Welcome to the KC Underground Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Corey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my line. <laughs> it's good to be back with you. You know, most of our episodes are designed to equip ordinary people like you, everyday followers of Jesus, with practical tools or ideas or inspirational stories of disciple-making to support you in your own disciple-making journey. Uh, today, we have the privilege of interviewing Frank Vaola. Frank, welcome. I'm honored to be on. You may or may not know this, but you had and have had, continue to have quite an influence on our network here in Kansas City, uh, especially in our, our early days as we were helping people deconstruct, reconstruct, like do both sides of that, of understanding the early church. Uh, a lot of your resources are still influencing us now. And we, we, we want to jump into uh, this conversation on uh, one of your other works, the book called Insurgents. Mm-hmm which is this robust, which, by the way, is a word we love. One of my favorites. Robust. Yep, exploration yep. on the gospel of the kingdom of God. Heads up for everybody listening from from here forward. That's where we're going. We want to wrap our heads around this. Um, and first question right out of the gate, why the book of insurgents? What was the starting point for you in trying to capture this idea? Yeah, we'll mm. kick it back to you. Insurgents. Yes. So I was provoked to write this book starting baseline. I write the book that I want to read, but I can't find because it doesn't exist. Mm. And so I was burdened to look at not only the kingdom of God, but this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. Mm. And I found it in the gospels and I found it in the book of Acts, the gospel of the kingdom. So I went on a journey to discover what is this gospel. And what I realized is that The gospel of the kingdom, out of every theme in the New Testament, it is the most powerful message in the entire scripture, Mm -hmm. old and new. There's nothing that is explosive and as revolutionary. And as I began to dig deeper into what it was exactly, I realized that it had the kind of devotion that terrorists, particularly Islamic terrorists, were having when they believed their false gospel. In other words, if you study terrorism, and we don't hear too much about it right now in 2023, but boy, in the time the book came out, 2018, it was on the news all the time. Right. And terrorists were recruiting Americans. And even some quote-unquote Christian people were moving to the other side, and they were becoming here was the term you heard all the time, radicalized. Mm -hmm. And that meant that they had given their entire soul and being, mind and heart, passion and possessions to the cause of the Islamic terrorist agenda. And I looked at that and I asked the question, how is it that these people can give everything, their entire families, their entire lives, and become martyrs for a wicked, evil cause. And we look at the Christians. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How come the Christian gospel that's often preached is not producing that kind of devotion, that kind of commitment? Now, I'm not talking about the evil things they do. Don't Mm -hmm. misunderstand. (laughs) I have to say this because sometimes people misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm talking about the level of commitment and devotion and all in. Yeah. And they've got a false gospel that's you know, physically destructive and globally destructive, and we have the true gospel, that is, we believe we do. How come it's not producing that kind of passion and commitment and devotion? And so I realized, brothers, that the gospel of the kingdom <laughs> is rarely being preached today. Mm. We 
have another kind of gospel, and in my judgment, it has truth to it. It's certainly, you know, in most cases, built on various texts in the Bible, but it's completely lacking. It's very incomplete. Mm. I would say it's correct, but it's incomplete. But when you see what the gospel of the kingdom is, and that's what this book does, it explores what it is. It produces converts that in their devotion and in their passion and in their abandonment look an awful lot like the radical terrorists, but without the evil, <laughs> you know, deeds and activities. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to call the book Radicalized because this is what I was communicating, is that when you were uh, converted in the first century and Paul of Tarsus came to town or you heard Philip preach in Samaria or you heard Peter preach in Palestine, you were radicalized mm -hmm. to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom community, which was an alternative civilization on this planet. It did not look like the Jewish communities and it did not look like the Greco-pagan communities. It was something completely different. The publisher said, we cannot call this radicalized. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's absolutely out of the question. So I said, well, what's another term that's close to it that communicates the same thing? And that's where insurgents was mm. born. Mm. Based on hearing you kind of walk through that a two-part question, can you share maybe a little bit about where you think we took that turn from that sort of first century radical commitment? to the versions of the gospel that we most often present today. Like, I, I do want to get into what are the differences in kind of the understanding of the gospel that most people have mm -hmm. versus the gospel of the kingdom that you're presenting within insurgents. Um, so we can go either direction. Maybe you pick that. I can answer both of them at the same time because they are related. Okay. Yeah. So what we have on the planet today, I divided up into two gospels. And I call them the gospel of legalism and the gospel of libertinism. And what's interesting about this is that those were the two gospels that were prevalent in the first century, and Paul of Tarsus took dead aim at both. So in the book of Galatians, he is firing his salvos at the gospel of legalism. And let me just make this plain. Legalism is not just you have to work to be saved. It's much more subtle than that. Legalism is God's holy, I'm not, I have to try harder. Yeah. I've got to try harder to be a good Christian. God's not happy with me. I'm not doing enough. And so it's this gospel of religious obligation and effort to try to make God happy. Mm -hmm. That's what legalism is. And in evangelical Christianity, it's in the drinking water. I mean, most every sermon you hear is designed to put you under a pile of guilt so that you'll try harder and you'll do better and you'll do more. That's the gospel of legalism. Now, the other side of it is the gospel of libertinism, and Paul took dead aim at this in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> Jude, who was a brother of Jesus and the brother of James, he wrote a letter, a little tiny letter called Jude. That was taking dead aim at the gospel of libertinism. And what the gospel of libertinism says is that I'm under grace. God loves me. It doesn't matter what I do. <laughs> it's right. turning the grace of God into lasciviousness or perverting the grace of God into license to sin. And this is what you had going on in the Corinthian church. So those two gospels were with us very early on, and they have continued with us. Now, 
Paul had a completely different gospel. So did Jesus. So did the apostles. And it was the gospel of the kingdom. And it transcends both the gospel of legalism and the gospel of libertinism by setting people free from religious duty, religious obligation, the condemnation of the law, trying to make God happy in our own power and our own strength. It also sets us free from the gospel of libertinism. In other words, it sets us free from the world system. It sets us free from the flesh, the power of the flesh, the disordered desires, disordered desires, distorted desires. I can speak English, gentlemen. <laughs> disordered desires of the flesh. It sets us free from that, too. It is a liberating gospel that liberates us both from legalism and libertinism. Now, where it started, as far as I can tell, very early on in about the second century, when you start reading the so-called church fathers, you are starting to see the Greco-Roman mind mm -hmm. enter into the Christian faith, and so much of it is legalism. And legalism comes right off the same tree as sin. Mm. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the knowledge of good in a nutshell, is religion. It's legalism. It's trying to make God happy as a human being in my own power and strength by doing things. And that, in effect, is what we find all throughout so many of the writings of, excuse me, the church fathers after the apostles passed away who were wielding the gospel of the kingdom. When they left, things reverted to the um, knowledge of good and evil <laughs> and legalism was paramount and so you find this in so many of the church fathers you read it and you feel like you know you're not even saved <laughs> yeah you are standing in the presence of a living breathing walking moses all right that's what most of it is now the response to that was the other side of it, right, uh, right, libertinism. Right. And we see the beginnings of that around 1830, the 19th century. And there grew up in a certain movement, this idea that being a disciple was different from being a convert. Now, you can't find that teaching before the 19th century. It just didn't exist. But the idea is being a convert is necessary to receive eternal life. But being a disciple is optional. Hmm. And you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. Mm -hmm. And then that separated the kingdom of God from eternal life. Yeah. So if you're going to be someone who enters into heaven or you receive eternal life, you have to be converted. But this thing about the kingdom of God, that's a reward. And only some enter that. And that's for the disciples. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's where the libertine gospel started to really pick up steam. And you had some famous theologians who established Bible schools. That was the root of it. Today, you can see these two very clearly in the conservative right versus the progressive left. Mm. And not just politically, but logically as well. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, man, you're just you're touching at so many things that man are, are near and dear. So, Frank, I don't know how much you know about KC Underground. We're, we're essentially a missions organization where 98% of our people are ordinary 
disciple making people like they're reaching their their network if it's a neighborhood if it's a friend group if it's a place start to see disciple making from, uh, from the ground up uh, and we see these like new what we call micro churches emerge um, learning a lot from movements globally and and one thing we sit in a lot is this thing we, we call it obedience um, obedience based disciple making we, we learned that phrase but I, when I was reading your book one of the things that really stood out to me was like, and actually I wrote this quote down when I was reading it the other day. So, um, if it's cool, if I just read this, uh, the problem with so much of today's preaching and teaching is that the stress is on obeying Jesus, submitting to Jesus and quote unquote, being radical for Jesus without first unveiling how glorious, wonderful and beautiful he is. And so as I think yeah. about so much of what we do, amen, by the way, uh, so much of what we do is when we're, we're hanging with people who probably will never step into a church building. But we begin to read the word together and we say, what does it look like to, you know, kind of put into practice what Jesus is telling us? That we kind of start from this place of they're seeing the worthy, the gloriousness of God, and then they kind of respond. It's not us telling them, hey, you should do this. It's kind of a personal conviction. And I just love to hear just kind of your thoughts on that. Like, what, what, how does this whole idea of the gospel of the kingdom intersect with disciple-making in 21st century, you know, America. I'm glad you asked this question because I think this goes to the heart of what I call the missing ingredient. Mm. So the second part of the book, there's six parts of the book. And for those of you who haven't read it, each part does something differently, but they all interlock. And some parts are going to speak stronger to, to some people and other parts mm. will speak stronger to others, but they all come together and dovetail. Now, the second part, and I put this in the beginning, intentionally is called unveiling the king's beauty mm -hmm. yeah. you cannot separate the kingdom of god and you cannot separate discipleship from the king himself yep. Yep. Come on. jesus christ embodies the kingdom all right now here's the thing when you look at those 12 disciples and you look at the radical call of jesus to forsake everything and follow me you have to realize that they were with him they saw him they lived with him even before he called them in that way they witnessed some of the things he did yeah in other words to put it in the words of john they beheld his glory yeah and then that's what captured their hearts yeah so you remember i don't know if you brothers are married but you remember the first days where you were exposed to that beautiful girl that you eventually married your heart was captured you had a revelation of who she was. There was an unveiling. Your eyes were open. You saw her differently than most of the guys saw her. Mm -hmm. And it was so magnetic. It was so powerful that your heart was captured. You didn't need somebody telling you, I want you to care for that girl. I want you to love that girl. I want you to want to spend time with that girl. Yeah. <laughs> right? It was an automatic response because you beheld her beauty. Yeah. Well, it's the same way with us. You cannot expect anybody, whether they're a Christian or not, we'll, we'll talk about the Christians now, because most of the people listening to this are Christian, right? You cannot expect someone who is a Christian to give all to the Lord and forsake all, like the first disciples of Jesus did, without first unveiling Christ to them, where they are dumbfounded. Mm where they are left breathless. And here's the thing, most people who preach today cannot do that. 
And the reason why they cannot do that is because they've never had that kind of revelation that swept them off their feet themselves. They've never seen the Lord like that. And one of the things that the apostolic ministry is and does is these people who were called to be apostles and who were sent, they had this kind of unveiling of Christ burning in their being. Mm. And it resulted in these firebrands who were so full of fire and passion that they couldn't help but declare the glories of Christ. And when they shared Jesus Christ in that way, people were dumbfounded. Now, it actually had an effect differently depending on where their hearts were. Yeah. Some it incited them to anger, right? This was Paul's testimony. Everywhere he went, there was a riot. But it also captured the hearts of some of the Jews, some of the God-fearers, and some of the Greco-pagans who were worshiping idols so much so that they forsook everything. And so the missing ingredient today is that we need people who are willing to learn how to reveal Christ in this way, Amen. how to show him forth, how to, first of all, have this kind of unveiling in their own heart and then be able to pass it on. And that's basically, I'm articulating what my ministry is all about. You know, my ministry is not, okay, let's look at the New Testament church. Let's try to do what they did. Mm. Instead, it's to pull back the curtain and say, wait a minute, what was behind this? Mm. What caused these people to forsake everything? Because they were captured by his glory. Well, how did that happen? And so that's really what I do. And one of the things, I'll just say this because it's related. The Insurgents book has produced several things. One, it's produced the Insurgents podcast. And on the Insurgents podcast, we're up to 100 episodes, plus 100 plus. I have a, a partner with me. And it's a different partner. <laughs> I think I've got up to six different partners. And we talk about every reference to the kingdom of God in the New Testament. And mm -hmm. then we riff on it. We expand it. But the other thing that's come out of it is a mastermind that I do with leaders, people who preach and teach. It doesn't matter what church form they're part of. I mean, we have pastors in traditional churches that come to this, pastors in denominational churches. We got teachers, traveling teachers, people who minister outside the organized church. It doesn't matter if they preach or teach. And what I do with them is I spend a year with them. We learn how to have this kind of unveiling of Jesus Christ and how to proclaim it where people are stunned when they hear the message of the gospel of the kingdom and of the king's beauty. And that's really where my heart beats. So I just pass it on to you brothers too, because you may be interested in this. I'm doing it again in 2024. And uh, if you're listening to this in 2027, God willing, we'll be doing it in 2028. <laughs> it's uh, called The Insurgents Experience, and people can check it out at ministrymind, one word, ministrymind.org. And that explains everything. And you read it, you read the testimonials, you see what we do. It takes you two minutes to apply. But anyway, I wanted to get that in because yeah. there may be some brothers listening to this saying, wow, there's something here. I want, I want to learn more about it. Yeah. Well, just in the last couple of minutes we have left, I just have one, one more question. Uh, so in light of that idea that we have a bunch of just, you know, ordinary people doing ordinary jobs and we celebrate that, we celebrate that word. Yeah, ordinary that is, a, is a really, it's honoring. a joyful, yeah. honoring word <laughs> yeah. in, in our, in our world. Yeah. We're not like just, uh, we're trying to embrace. We're not, we're not giving away like the working of seeing heaven come to earth to a special priestly cast. Like we're all a part of that priesthood. Right. Um, so just in the last couple minutes here, can you talk a bit about how this book is not just for the scholar or the preacher mm -hmm. and why it's so important for everyday people to pick up 
and engage. You're speaking my language when you talk about ordinary believers. You know, the cuss word in the Christian world is layman. Poor, miserable layman. You know, they're separate class. They're 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 just laying around somewhere. (laughs) They're in the lower in the lower rung of the caste system in the religious world. The fact of the matter is, and I'll use that cuss term, first century Christianity was a lay led movement. Mm. That's right. And the apostolic workers, you know, they were not people that we think in terms of being like these paid professionals who are above the people. These guys were people who got the tar beat out of them. Typically, all of them were martyred, uh, excepting John, uh, who died in old age, but he went through hell on earth. <laughs> well, I was going to say he was on an island by himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by himself. And there are some reports that he was uh, boiled in olive oil, mm-hmm. survived it. You know, We don't know if that's true or not, but they were the dregs of the earth. Paul uses this term when he says, you know, the apostles were the last. And it's because they were poured out. Their lives were poured out and they got the beatings, mm-hmm. not just physically, but verbally, and their reputations were destroyed. The same is true for anybody who is called to the apostolic work today, truly called to the apostolic work. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. And Paul would never say that he's part of a professional clergy. That didn't exist in the first century. So the point I'm making is everybody was a layman in the first century and everybody was clergy, kleros. You know, everybody was in leadership in some respect. You know, there were just different roles. I write books that I try to write books to where a high school student can pick it up and grasp it and learn from it. But at the same time, a scholar can read it and glean insight from it that he or she has not had before. Now, that's hard to do. But I've managed to, I think, pull it off because, for example, this book, I have had two things happen. One. I've had parents tell me, my high school son is reading your book and he's being transformed by it. And I also had a a sister in the Lord when the book came out. She was in her early 30s. She says, I wish I had this book in high school. (laughs) It would have saved me so much pain and heartache and mistakes. And on the other hand, people like uh, Craig Keener, who's the foremost New Testament scholar in the world, he endorsed the book. He benefited from it. The late Michael Heiser, unfortunately, he endorsed the book, benefited from it. So it's written in such a way that a high school student or someone who's a blue collar worker can understand the message, can grasp it. At the same time, there are insights into this book that have been helpful to scholars and theologians. Mm-hmm. So I thank the Lord for that because that's beyond my ability. But um, I'm tracking with you when you use the word ordinary. You know, and I'll just want to add this to that thought. When Jesus of Nazareth was 13 years old, he had peers some of whom went to Jerusalem to learn how to be a scribe, a professional scribe. Some went to Jerusalem to learn how to be a rabbi. Some went to Jerusalem to be a priest. And here is the Son of God, the first apostle he's called by the writer of Hebrews. And what does he do? He does not get an official theological training. (laughs) (laughs) He stays in Nazareth, and he becomes a blue-collar worker. And there's the first minister on the planet. Not only is the first minister, this is God in flesh. Yeah. There's a lesson there mm. for every person who feels called to the Lord's work. Look at your Lord. 
Yeah. Now, Paul Tarsus, he was in the professional religious system as a Jew, right? He was brought up to be a Pharisee, but he left all of that, mm. and he he worked for a living. You yeah. know, he was someone who did not receive a paid professional clergy salary, and sometimes he was dirt poor. He would receive money from churches, and not many gave to him. It, it appears that Philippi was the only one that helped him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, God bless Lydia. But he, he lived, uh, you know, by mending tents. He was a leather worker. He only took money from a church when he was on the road. He would never take a penny when he was among the believers working with them. Mm. That's the Pauline way. Now, Peter, on the other hand, he was supported by the church, but it wasn't a professional clergy salary that came in, you know, every week. Right. He still had to live by faith, too. And the church in Jerusalem suffered tremendously financially. They had to get relief from Antioch because it was so bad. And you remember the story in the opening chapters of Acts. The man says, well, I want you to give me money. That's right. Yeah. Silver and gold have I none. I'm yeah. broke. Yeah, <laughs> and that's yeah. Peter, yeah. the apostle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, to your point, I'm actually I'm speaking at a, a camp this weekend, a bunch of college kids, and uh, the whole idea is like, hey, your life of purpose and ministry doesn't end this summer, you know. And I'm actually uh, because I just recently read this book, I was I'm, I'm reading a paragraph of early on in your in your book because it got me fired up. Uh, so it's to your point to like young people, it was, I mean, it was it was around the idea that you're just talking about, like you know, this gospel was so utterly uncompromisingly just like it you know caused the zeal and the passion that people left everything for and um and so i'm actually going to read read that and and uh, so i just want to affirm you say thank you uh for that I, I will say man like i was passionate about that in high school college and i'm maybe more passionate about it now and it's not something that i i feel like we sometimes church uh, the passion out of people <laughs> when it comes to yeah. uh, our allegiance to We domesticate to them. Yeah, and it's just so sad, and um, and so it's part of what we're doing. So all that to be said, uh, often we end our podcasts with kind of a invitation for the guests to to speak over a like a speak a word over us. And so I'm kind of you know rambling here for another 20 seconds for you to you know maybe think and hear from the Lord of what you might say to us radical rate like crazy ordinary group of people here in kansas city like i i love the radical and i love the ordinary like if you take those two things and blend it together i feel like it describes a lot of what we're seeing and you know we're seeing you know dozens of dozens of microchurch expressions popping up in kansas city and in ordinary places and um yeah man so just like we're all ears if there's just something that you would uh speak over us as a network we'd love to hear it well i will say this the cutting edge always must be the centrality, the supremacy, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. He has to be at the very center of everything. Mm -hmm. And it is so easy to have methods, even quote-unquote discipleship, you know, put quotes around it as a thing, evangelism, church, church structure. It's so easy to put those things at the helm and at the center and leave Jesus Christ himself out in the cold, that's right, that's right. where he's been eclipsed by these things, okay? So the cutting edge always has to be Christ. He has to be the centrality. If you were to get a transcript of this audio, you would see that the bulk of what I have said is all about the king and the king's beauty and his glory and the need 
for Christian workers to have that kind of an unveiling of him in their own hearts and to be able to proclaim that with power and passion to other people so that they can catch that sighting of Jesus as well. And that's the thing that cuts through both the gospel of libertinism and the gospel of legalism. And it's what brings us into the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, the gospel of the kingdom is a very part of this message of Jesus Christ and his centrality and his glory. And the other thing I would say, this has been in my heart, I put together the Insurgents Experience Mastermind, mainly for people who are called to the Lord's work. They're either involved in it, or they're starting out, or maybe they're seasoned. My heart beats for guys that are in their 20s, 30s, and early 40s or mid-40s. That's really where my heart beats because that's the next generation. My ministry is for all ages. Don't get me wrong. Even you know the teens and the people in their 50s and up. But this experience, if the message of the book has captured anyone and they are involved in the Lord's work, they preach or teach, I really would encourage them strongly to look at this. It is not a cohort. It's not a pastor's network. It's not a seminar. It's not a conference. It's nothing like what most of us know in the Christian world. It's something completely different. And if you go to ministrymind.org, and I would love you brothers, for you brothers to participate in this. I think it would electrify you, as well as those who are listening who are in ministry. But Ministry Mind, all one word. Org. You can get to see what it is, and you can look at a video of some of the brothers testifying. And you know what we learn how to do? It's not a bunch of methods. It's not strategies. It's not how to reach more people. It's how to know Jesus Christ in ways that will blow your mind. And to be able to present him in this powerful, astonishing way where people are left riveted by him. That's really what we do. Cool. Man, thanks. Thank you. Frank, for spending time with us. Mm -hmm. And I just, for those listening, just know that, you know, this is one of the really important things for us is to ground everything that we do in the underground in Scripture and in the centrality mm -hmm. of who Jesus is to declare that he is Lord, that three-word worldview, and to equip ordinary sisters and brothers, daughters and sons of the King to live out their uh, their masterpiece mission to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven and that invitation to join Jesus in what he's already doing, um, as Ephesians says, to fill the earth. Pick up Frank's books, read them because they're incredible and they will support you in your own disciple-making journey. And uh, yeah, Frank, thanks so much. And uh, for the rest of you that join us weekly, thanks for listening. See you next time.